0: Um, I feel like God has a fatherly word for us today. Um, When I say fatherly, I mean tender and strong. Um, One that is deeply, I hope, comforting, but also one that gives us fiber in our bones and backbone to live life faithfully. We've been in Hebrews 11 for a while, and we will be for a little bit longer, for at least a few more weeks, I'm sure. And I hope you've been uh, reading it every day, um, like I suggested a few weeks back, and if you weren't here that week and you didn't hear me say that, or you haven't been, or been somewhat sporadic, you know, pick it up this week. Read Hebrews 11 every day. Uh, Don't just read Hebrews 11, read it with your other Bible reading, but, but take 10 extra minutes and read it. And uh, it'll bless you. You could do it first thing in the morning. What an encouragement to start your day with. Or at the end of the day, what a way to end your night with. Or if you want to be an overachiever, do both, right? Um, Hebrews 11. We've been um, talking about faith. What faith is. Faith is the confident trust in the future God has promised us. And it's the ability by, by faith to see the invisible that he's revealed in his word We've talked about how faith is what pleases God. Last week, Reed talked about how faith is this, this confidence that, I think he says that, this is the way I heard it anyways, that rises to the level of boasting. A confidence in God that, that takes us to the level of boasting in God, of glorying in Him, of exalting in Him. And so that's what we've been talking about so far. And this morning, The text we have, you know, I believe in the providence of God, that God is over all things. He's sovereign, he's powerful, he's the king of the universe. And our text this morning starts so fittingly. Here's what it says. These all died in faith. How do you die in faith? We've talked about how to live in faith, live by faith. The first words of our passage this morning is these all died in faith. Now they died at an old age, but they lived their entire lives in faith and then they died in faith. That's what I want to explore today. How do you die in faith? How do you get to the end of your life and then die well? Ever thought about that? Jonathan Edwards, now I'm not suggesting you do this, but he said, that one of his resolutions was every day he would take a portion of time and this would be a good thing to do, but I'm not, saying, not putting this load on you. But he would think about his the end of his life every day. How do you get to the end and die well? I remember several years ago I heard John Piper say that one of the primary aims of his ministry as pastor and preacher was he wanted to help his people die well. And he, I think he went on to say, if I remember right, not just those that are like 90, you know, or not just those that are in the hospital, but those who are in the prime of their life, physically and whatever, else, however, whatever other way, he wanted to prepare them so that when they meet death, they would die well. Something struck me as beautiful, and I've always remem- remembered that. That's an important thing to do. And here's why. Everyone here is going to die. Everyone here is going to die, and some unexpected and sooner than you thought, and others maybe, maybe later than you thought, but everyone here is going to die, and death is the final and most severe test of faith. It says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, they died in faith, and that's what we want to do as well. We want to die in faith. One commentator said death is the final test of faith and these all passed with flying colors. They died in faith. They died in faith not having received the things that were promised. In other words, when they died, they didn't die dejected and discouraged because the things promised weren't received. They died believing They believed all the way to the end of their lives and then they died still believing the promises that God had given them. Charles Spurgeon said about this phrase, he said, it matters nothing else how else they they died, whether by old age or by violent means. This one point in which they all agree is the most worthy of record. They all died in faith. In faith they lived, it was their comfort, their guide, their motive and their support and in the same spiritual grace they died, ending their life song in the sweet strain in which they had so long continued. Faith is as precious to die by as to live by. So how do we live so that when we die, we die in faith? That's what I want to look at today. This is the question that's before us and I think that we really need this I think that we need to understand this and not just understand it, but this this needs to become part of who we are and how we live, the kind of faith that will carry us to the end and then we die full of confidence in God. This faith will give you confidence, courage, and endurance all the way to the end. Whether you live a really long time or whether you don't live that much longer, And even when life is really hard, confidence and courage. Hebrews 10.36 says, You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. You have need of perseverance. You have need of staying power, so that when you've done God's will, you may receive the things promised. And remember, the things promised, at least in this context, Hebrews 10.11, are all future. Future, eternal promises. So how do we die in faith? I want, I want to draw two things to your attention this morning. First, we need to firmly fix our hope on eternity. And second, we need to live now as pilgrims on earth. And of course, these things go together perfectly. Perfectly. We need to firmly fix our hope on eternity, our eyes on eternity, and we need to live now on earth as pilgrims. Think if anyone's read Pilgrim's Progress. You guys read that book? Maybe you've heard it enough. I've talked about it probably up here enough. Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote this book while he was in prison. It's, I think, the most widely sold book besides the Bible in the English language, which is amazing wrote it in the 1600s, and it's about a guy on a journey through this world to the celestial city, to the heavenly city. And he's a pilgrim. So let's step through these verses, and I want want to show you, we need to firmly fix our hope on eternity, and we need to live now like pilgrims on earth. First, to die in faith, you need to firmly fix your hope on eternity. Look at what verse 13 says. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So we need to firmly fix our hope on eternity. We need to Firmly fixed, not, no passivity, no, not passively thinking that when you die, you'll go to heaven, but not firmly fixed on that. God's promised future in Christ must be big and real, as opposed to small and marginal and imaginary. Right? Big and real. It was for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises they saw them. It says they saw them and they greeted them from afar. They knew the promises were future, and they looked out over the horizon and say, "There they are. I see them." And even more than that, it says they greeted them, or some translations say welcomed them. They said, "Hey, how you doing? Promises? I see you. I'm coming." Right, the future was big. It was real. It's like I, the way I thought of it was like sailors, not sailors on some cruise ship today. That's like a like an elegant city on the sea. But imagine being a sailor in the first century, and you're say which is a great way to travel. You can go from one place to another much faster than going all the way around on land. But when you're on a boat for 30 days, you want to get off. And so imagine you're a sailor on a ship, you've been on for four, six, eight weeks, and you're dying to set your feet on solid ground, and all of a sudden you see over the horizon land. I see it. Hello there. I'm coming. You can almost feel the land underneath, you, underneath your feet. This is how God's promised future for us in Christ needs to become for us. More and more like this. We know that this has something to do with the future for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even for us because of the progression of three phrases that are used, all of which point to an eternal dwelling with God. Verse 14 says those who speak like this or those who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15 says they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Not just better earthly country like I'd rather live here than there than here but a heavenly country. In verse 16, God has prepared for them a city. A homeland, a better and heavenly country, and a city. What are these things speaking of? Not mainly streets of gold and mansions in heaven, but mainly a dwelling place where we get to dwell with God forever. That's the main thing. I recently heard... Someone, I was at a, a gathering um, where someone I knew passed away, and there was a, it was like a celebration of life gathering. And someone heard someone sharing how they described to their to his granddaughter what heaven would be like. His granddaughter, four or five years old, little girl said, "What's heaven going to be like?" And he said, well, "I told her, you know, I think it's going to be like being at church forever." And I got to tell you, I was like, oh my gosh, he's ruined it for his granddaughter forever. <laughs> not because, I love being at church, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love being here with you, worshiping, singing, praying, talking, fellowshipping, not today, but hugging, and, right? And, and preaching. I love preaching and I love hearing preaching. I love it. But heaven's going to be so much better than this. I mean, so much better than this. We're not going to be singing 6,000 choruses of amazing grace. We're going to be praising him, no doubt. We're going to be worshiping, no doubt. It's all going to be worship. Not singing worship, but it's all going to be worship. And I don't think there's probably going to be any preaching there. At least not by anybody other than Jesus. I I don't know. It's going to be paradise restored. Paradise. (laughs) New heavens and new earth. Paradise. And God's going to be there in the full resplendence of his glory, and we will be in awe of him. And I just, I think we're gonna be in awe of him forever. It's not like we're gonna be in awe of him for the first thousand years, and then it's gonna kind of get old and tired, like, oh, it's him again. You know, we are going to, because his glory, his love, he is inexhaustible. And so we're gonna be in awe of him forever. Forever. You guys know what it's like to be in awe of something. You see some physical beauty, you know, natural beauty. um, And if your jaw could hit the ground, it would hit the ground like, wow, that's amazing. Heaven's gonna be like that forever. Except way better than anything you've ever seen or experienced. Forever. What's the city he's preparing? What's it like Well, we get a glimpse in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I want to read a portion of this to you. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, and I'm going to read a few more verses in 21 and then go to 22 for a bit of that as well. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All the things that cause us pain and sorrow and suffering, those are called former things and they'll be gone forever. God's gonna be in our presence. And God himself will wipe away our tears. God himself will wipe them away. How precious is that? Verse 10 says, And... He carried me away in the Spirit. This is John talking to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 22 And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty. Isn't that amazing? We're not going to go to a place that, I mean, God himself is going to be the temple. We're going to gather around him, right? For the, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night there, no night. or Silas? No night, no night there, no bedtime. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter the city nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then, this chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse four, chapter 22. They will see his face. We will see his face. Now we see in a glass dimly, then face to face. And his name will be on their foreheads. That's amazing. (laughs) I love church. That's way better than church, (laughs) than our church services. Oh my goodness. Amazing. Now, our church services should be a foretaste of that in some way. We're going to be with him forever. The city that he's prepared. We need to develop an appetite for this now. 17th century pastor, Puritan Richard Baxter, wrote a a book entitled The Saint's Everlasting Rest. He gave himself to 30 minutes of meditation on heaven. And this book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, is the fruit of that meditation. I mean, meditation over the scriptures, of course, not just kind of going into his own brain. His meditation on heaven for a half hour each day had a tremendous impact on his life. And he commended the same practice to others. And I want to commend it to you today. Here's what he said. If you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar Altar of heavenly meditation. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warmed. So how do you die in faith? By longing for that. (laughs) By having your eyes, your hope, firmly fixed on eternity and specifically your eternal dwelling with God through faith in Christ. second. To die in faith, we need to learn to live like pilgrims now on earth. We need to live like pilgrims here. Look at the last part of verse 13. It says, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So it says they didn't receive the things promised, they died in faith, but they greeted, they saw them and greeted them from afar, and they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is important. The word acknowledge, that's translated acknowledge, could be translated confessed or declared or admitted. What it means is, it's, it's a Greek word, homo logeo. It's made up so two words. Homo for the same as, and logeo means to say the same as, or to say. So we put those two things together. It means to say the same as. 1 John 1.9 says if you confess, your sins, if you say the same that God says about your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Here, it's saying they confessed, they acknowledged. We're strangers and exiles. They learned to say the same thing that God said about them in this regard. Do you know that God says, you're a pilgrim here. You're a pilgrim on earth. This is not your final destination. You're on a, you hear people say, "Oh, they're all on a journey. Well, in one very, in, in kind of a cheesy way, there is a real sense in which we are on a journey to our heavenly dwelling. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not regard that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ or the heavenward call of God in Christ. We're on a journey. We're pilgrims. You and I are strangers and exiles. And because that's what God says about us, we should say the same. And even more than just saying it, we should learn to live like it and believe it or believe it and live like it. I find it interesting that the author uses two words instead of just one. He says they confessed or they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. He doesn't just say strangers or exiles. He says strangers and exiles. And I think he does this for a good reason. The word strangers, that's translated as strangers, is the word xenos. Maybe you've heard of someone's xenophobic. They're afraid of things that are foreign or different. Xenos means foreign. So he says, you're a foreigner. You are are in a place that's not your homeland. And then he says, you are also an exile. An exile is someone who is keenly aware that they are not home, that they are away from their country. I can't imagine these were Jewish Christians who, who first would have received this letter And they probably hearkened back to when God, when the Israelites, because of judgment, were brought, were taken by force away from their land, Israel, and brought by the Chaldeans to Babylon. They were exiles. They were refugees. They were away from their home. So there's a strangeness of being in a foreign land and also the feeling of missing your homeland. This is what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob confessed. And this is what we ought to confess. God help us. I mean, life can be so comfortable and easy. And we can feel so at home. This constant this, this theme of being exile strangers is a constant theme in the book of First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter tells us who he's writing to. He says, to those who are elect exiles or chosen exiles. Chapter 1, verse 17, just later in the first chapter, he, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners or strangers and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war on your soul. Exiles, strangers, sojourners. Paul reminds us of what we hope for as pilgrims on this journey, as exiles longing for our homeland, as strangers on the earth. He says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we eagerly await a Savior. We long for him to come. We really want him to come. It was so cool. You know, I've been thinking about this stuff most of this week, and then we had men study yesterday. And we, we, here's what we talked about in the study yesterday the return of Christ. <laughs> we read Revelation 21, 22, parts of it, and some other passages. I'm like, yes, yes, Lord, help me. I need help in this. I need help to fix my hope on eternity and to see myself now as a pilgrim. I need help to do that. And so we seek a better country, a hev- heavenly one, don't we? That's what we want. That's what we want. And if that's what you seek and you desire, look at what verse 16 says God says about you. Verse 16 says God is not ashamed to be called their God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they they saw the the, the promised future of God. They longed for it. They saw themselves as aliens and as um, strangers and exiles. And they longed for the city God was preparing for them. And so God says, I'm not ashamed to call them, to be called their God. In Exodus 3.6, God tells Moses who he is. Later, he he reveals himself as, I I am that I am. But earlier, he says, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I mean, there is no greater honor to be given to a mortal, I don't think, than for the sovereign God of the universe to say, I'm your God. I'm your God. Just think about what that means for a second. I mean, any, hu- any just relatively humble person, or even just if you have a humble f- moment, we realize if God is God, he owns me. I'm his. He doesn't have to ask me if I want to be his, I belong to him. The earth is the Lord's a fullness of the world and everyone who dwells in it. We are his. Hopefully by redemption, not just by rights of him being the ruler and creator. But we're his. Here, God says, I'm not ashamed to, to, to tell them I'm yours. We may say to God, you are my God. You're mine. And amazingly, all who truly trust in Christ may insert their name into this divine pronouncement where God says, I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua de Grote, Amanda Rye, Matthew Bryan, Marcy Ford, you put your name in the blank. I am not ashamed to be called their God. That's amazing. That's stunning. There are two reasons given as to why God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and insert your name if you are among them. One, the first reason is that he's prepared a city for them. And the second reason is they desire it. They want it. He's prepared a city. One, they desire it. Here's what it says. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You hear that? They desire to be with him and to enter his city and to dwell with him forever so God's not ashamed to be called their God. And then it finishes by saying this, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So he's prepared a city for them and they want it. They want it. Do you want to be unashamed, to be called. Do you want God to be unashamed, to be called your God? Of course you do. That's why you're here today. You, you want that. Here's the deal. You don't need to do some great massive work that he'd be proud of and say, man, I am super impressed. And you don't need to accomplish some massive impressive moral feat so that God says, well, look at that. Oh my goodness. No here's how you desire the city of God's everlasting joy. You desire the city of God's everlasting joy to live with him and be in his presence. You desire that? He's like, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I love you. I can't wait to bring you to myself. I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind when when he said, we read this yesterday too, John 14. He's going to prepare a place He says, "If I go to prepare a place, I'm going to bring you to myself." I have no doubt that if we went around the room, you know, we would have many stories of sweet and precious and powerful experiences with God, where His presence seemed very near. It's like it's almost like we could feel His breath on our neck. It seems so near. It doesn't compare. Jesus said, I'm gonna bring you to be with me where I am. In other words, however great we may experience Christ now in this life, there is an experience of Jesus of being with him where he is, looking him in the eyes. Do you desire the city he's prepared are you seeking it? Everlasting joy. Think of it this way. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Ever heard that verse before? All the promises, every single one of them, every promise that God ever has made to his people, they come to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's yes and amen to all of his promises. Every single one of them. The best is yet to come. And so it's like this. Through Jesus, God gives all of his children the keys to this heavenly city. We're going to enter it in the future, but he gives us the keys. Through Jesus, we've got the keys. Do you want the keys? Do you want the city? Then through Christ, it's yours. It's yours. So we die in faith by fixing our hope on the eternal dwelling with God and living like pilgrims on the earth now on our way to paradise with the keys to the city. So, today, March 15, 2020, we have this present virus that's spreading throughout the world and increasingly even in our own country and perhaps in our state, probably in our, in our state as well, the coronavirus now recognizes a pandemic. The stock market has shrunk a significant amount in the last few weeks. People are feeling the effects of all of this, maybe even not directly, but like, not like everyone's sick or everyone has a lot of money in the stock market or whatever. Of course, we can fall in the ditch on either side. We can either get caught up in the mass hysteria or we can just be completely unconcerned and foolish and unwise. <laughs> I've tried to limit my Facebook time. I, I always do, but like the last couple, it's like almost every other thing I see is either some somebody sharing some meme stirring up hysteria or someone sharing a meme making fun of the whole thing. Those are the two ditches. How are, you respo- how are you responding though? I hope in faith and by faith and through faith. I hope so. In 1854, there was a cholera outbreak in London and day and night, Charles Spurgeon was called to comfort those who were sick and dying. It had hit his church hard. He had a huge church in, a, in, in London. After this cholera outbreak, and I'm sure burying many people, he said this. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how long after, but at some point after he said, the Christian need not dread sickness. For he has nothing to lose and everything to gain by death. That's what Paul said. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What we should dread is the plague of an unbelieving and faithless heart. That's a plague that will sink us. What does what Hebrews 10, 39 say? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what is the destroyed there? Eternally destroyed. We want to we fear being unbelieving. What we should dread is a shrinking heart and faith that's what we should dread we should be careful as hebrews 3 12 says that we don't have an evil unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living god that's what we should be careful about and wash your hands (laughs) right okay use sanitizer But this is why Hebrews 11 was written. Not because a plague was sweeping through Italy, where these people were probably at, but because they were facing persecution and eventually, some of them, death. Hebrews 11 was written to say, come on, keep going, trust God, have faith, put your confidence in him, boast in him. Your future is eternally bright in Jesus. Don't shrink back. these all died in faith. And we want to die in faith. Right? When you face death, either at a ripe old age of 97, after a slow gradual decline, and die peacefully in the night, or after a battle with some sickness, much younger than that, we want to die in faith. Confidence in Christ what does Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 say? Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, all these saints have gone before us and who had faith, let us lay aside every weight. Let us also, like them, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. And then doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on him. I believe it was D.L. Moody who once said, I I think it was him. I've heard it attributed to him. If you know it wasn't, you can correct me. But I I think it was D.L. Moody who once said that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Now, I don't know the context in which that was said. He may have had a good reason to say that. (laughs) You know, people that were just sitting around gazing up to heaven, you know, not doing anything. I don't know why he said that. He may have had a good reason. Probably did. But I think the the New Testament message is that we need to be more heavenly minded so that we can be more, we can do more good here on earth. Let me say that again. The New Testament seems to say we need to be more heavenly minded so that we can do the most good while we live here on earth. So, let's fix our eyes on Christ and the eternal reward, the city that's before us, and let's live like pilgrims on a journey with our eyes firmly fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, and go in confidence and boasting in him, with great joy, let's pray.